Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. Why do we fight? When peace brings trade and prosperity, and the freedom to live lives free from the threat of war, why does history, let alone psychology or criminology, show us that we humans make almost a habit out of fighting? Some evolutionary biologists say it's written in our DNA. And even the ancient Roman general Vegetius summed it up when he said, If you want peace, prepare for war. In 1993, a Washington Post article summarised George Orwell's thoughts. It read, George Orwell pointed out that people sleep peacefully in their beds at night because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. What both Vegetius and Orwell were saying was that war and conflict seem so inevitable that the only way to ensure that you're able to live in peace is to be, as a group, strong enough to deter or beat back those who would wish to harm you. War, it seems, has been around for almost as long as we have, and we have the archaeological record to prove it. Peering back into the far distant depths of time can, of course, be fraught with inaccuracy. But there are some tantalising and in many places pretty clear clues as to what was going on. In northern Sudan, for example, large numbers of skeletons have been found dated to around 13,000 years ago. Half of them have arrowheads embedded in their bones. Another find in Kenya from around 10,000 years ago shows numerous people with severe traumatic injuries, including obsidian blades embedded in their skeletons. About the same time, Mesolithic rock art in Australia and cave art in Spain show explicit scenes of warfare, with the Spanish art showing groups of archers attacking, chasing and surrounding each other. You can see many of these for yourself in areas like Valencia, Andalusia and Aragon. Our ability to wage war has of course developed stratospherically from 10,000 years ago. But I would argue our reasons for war have not. In this series we'll look at what I think are nine of history's most common sparks for armed conflict and use real-life wars and battles to prove it. And in our final episode, we'll look at the psychology of the individual and what makes people risk life and limb by going to war. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Welcome to Why We Fight and its first episode, Ego. Call it reputation, prestige or fame. The drive of usually a single man's ego has often led to the rise of empires and civilizations, as well as the countless deaths of unnumbered people. If you've listened to our Scottish Wars of Independence series, you'll remember the English knight Henry de Bowen, who spotted Robert Bruce, the King of Scotland, sitting astride his horse in front of his lines at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. Lowering his lance, de Bowen charged the Scottish king, only to find him more nimble than he'd imagined, and lost his head to the Bruce's axe as he swept by. 
it was to Bowen's vanity that had led him to make such a charge. All the arrogance of English aristocracy fueling his mad ego. He hadn't offered single combat to the Bruce, so there weren't any terms attached to their duel. So even if he had one, the Scots almost certainly wouldn't have allowed him to leave without a few blows from a warhammer or two. For de Bowen, win or lose, his charge was essentially suicidal. But he knew that if he won, he would go down in history as the killer of a Scottish king, and possibly as the bringer of English dominion over Scotland. As it is, even in defeat, his name still echoes down the ages, and that alone would probably satisfy his vanity. And perhaps that is what drives the ego of some men. The prospect of immortality. In that famous line in the Hollywood epic Troy, when a little boy tells the great warrior Achilles that he wouldn't want to fight a giant Thessalonian because he's the biggest man he had ever seen, Achilles responds, That's why no one will remember your name. In the Iliad, Achilles is said to have had no love for the Greek warlord Agamemnon, nor for Agamemnon's lost sister-in-law, the beautiful Helen. He fought only for himself, his glory, the immortality of his name. He fought, in short, for his ego. Whether Achilles actually lived or not is beside the point. Even if Achilles is simply a character in an ancient story, the best stories reflect back to us our own real desires. What Homer was telling us is that men exist for whom ego is everything. That it can be so powerful that it can drive them to make war and often be very good at it. And speaking of ancient Greeks, colossal egos and aptitudes for war, let's talk about Alexander the Great. There were several motivations behind Alexander's conquering of half the known world, one certainly being revenge against the Persians. The Greeks had had beef with the Persians ever since Darius the Great had brought his armies across the Aegean Sea and been defeated at Marathon in 490 BC. The other great motivation, of course, was plunder. It's no surprise that Alexander went after the filthy rich empires in Egypt, Persia, Central Asia and India. But it was Alexander's towering ego which drove him on and on. When he reached the Hyphasis River, now known as the Bias, in the Punjab of northern India, the only thing that stopped him going further was the mutiny of his army. Riches aside, there really was no point in continuing further, other than to feed the continuous hunger of Alexander's ego. By now, they were nearly 5,000 kilometres from home in Macedonia. Why else would Alexander want to go ever further on if not to pursue his own glory? Certainly his men could think of no other reason. He had been raised on the stories of Greek gods and heroes, of the likes of Achilles, Hector, Hercules, Odysseus and Aeneas, the legendary survivor of Troy and founder of Rome. Alexander didn't want to simply emulate these great heroes, he wanted to surpass them, 
to be known for all time as the greatest of Greeks. One of his most famous quotes is, How great are the dangers I face to win a good name in Athens. It literally was all about his reputation. Never mind marching tens of thousands of his loyal men, thousands of kilometres, fighting huge and vicious armies the whole time. And never mind those who stood in his way, of the innumerable people he killed, the dynasties he crushed. It was his glory which mattered, that he would earn the epithet the great, that he would be known throughout all time, the fact that we would be talking about him more than 2,000 years later. There are so many more examples of ego driving conflict. Julius Caesar conquering all of Gaul because he wanted to, and then crossing the Rubicon to begin his journey to Rome's dictator. Caesar's one-time ally, Crassus, described as the richest man in Rome, set out on a foolhardy quest to match Caesar's triumphs, and took an army to fight the deadly Parthians in the deserts of modern-day southern Turkey. He paid for his hubris with his own and 20,000 Roman lives. Then there's the likes of Benito Mussolini, on a mission to revive the Roman Empire in the 20th century, and finding that only Libya and Ethiopia would succumb to his armies, and even then, not without a fight. Napoleon, Henry VIII, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein. The list of war-hungry men driven by their egos is endless. There are almost always additional motivations involved, of course, or at least the excuses they hide behind. But it's beyond doubt that ego has propelled leaders and the men and women who follow them to some of history's most famous and infamous wars. It's not only the great fanfare empire builders driven by ego, though. I'll leave you with one final example from the closing months of World War II. I wrote my undergrad dissertation on the first-hand experiences of Allied soldiers fighting Operation Market Garden and the Battle of the Bulge in 1944. And among the many primary source biographies, diaries and letters I read, one stands out in my memory. It was written by an American paratrooper who, together with his buddy, were hunting a German sniper who had shot one of their friends. For hours they searched for him in the rubble of a small village in Holland. But they finally found him and shot him dead. What the American soldier said he felt was elation. And I mean serious, buzzing elation. In part because he had gained vengeance for his shot friend, but also because simply he had won. He had beaten the German and not in a I'm glad I got him before he got me way, just simply that he had won their duel, that he had got the better of him. The simple thrill of winning drives men to make war too. Ego has driven men like Henry de Bowen, Achilles, Alexander the Great, and your average G.I. Joe to fight wars and battles most of us today can barely imagine. History shows us that ego has caused conflict again and again, and history teaches us to look for repeats.
So watch out for egotistical leaders today, because they might just be scrapping for a fight. Join us next time for our second episode in the Why We Fight series, Resources, and how everything from gold mines and farmland to spices and oil fields have spurred conquest and warfare on a massive scale. Thanks for listening. See you then.